I'd like to pray with you one more time, if you don't mind, before we talk about what we're going to talk about for the next few moments. Father God, thank you for being who you are. Thank you for this opportunity that we have to come together and to grow closer to you and to understand you better, which in turn helps us to understand ourselves better. God, I pray right now that you would simply just be here amongst us, that you would speak to each and every one of your sons and your daughters that you love more than anything. That whatever they need to hear now in this moment, they will hear loud and clear, myself included. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we, we uh, are going to be talking about something today that is, is something that I'm passionate about and something that I, I think um, we can best understand by examining the life of someone in a period of Israel's history. Uh, and this was an individual who, in a lot of ways, you could say kind of stood in the gap for his people. And... Um, he, he had this, this faith and, and this radical kind of all-in obedience, and his people, which at the time was the southern kingdom of Israel, the kingdom of Judah, they were actually preserved from destruction, and during this guy's lifetime, they experienced a, a great spiritual awakening, a, a reconnection with God, a time, uh, maybe the, the old church term would be called a revival, right? You ever heard that term before? This man's name was Hezekiah, and Hezekiah lived about 123 years before Ezekiel, if you're familiar with, with the history there. And uh, Ezekiel's judgment was supposed to happen earlier than it did, but because of this man Hezekiah, who stepped in and stood in the gap for his people, that judgment was put off for 123 years. And the story is found in the book of 2 Chronicles, chapter 28. And that's where we're going to be spending most of our time in today. Historian Thomas Carlyle famously said that the destinies of societies are shaped by great men and women who act boldly at key times. Now, there's a lot of historians who actually criticize his theory because they say that multiple factors usually contribute uh, to societal movements, but I, I agree that there's something to what Carlisle's saying here, and you can't overlook that there are ways that the courage and the boldness of one person can change the course of an entire society. And so I want you today, I want you as we're, we're talking and we're thinking here, I want you to see yourself as that one man or that one woman like Hezekiah, who's going to stand in the gap for your family, for your group of friends, maybe for your college if you're in college, for us as a church to stand in the gap for our city. Being the faith instrument, you being the faith instrument that connects his healing with their need. It's kind of like that scene. Anybody see the old classic movie, Back to the Future? You guys know what I'm talking about? A few of you? All right, come on. 
It, everybody's seen that movie, right? So in Back to the Future, there's this old mad scientist doctor, and, and he, he kind of he goes and he joins up this dangling piece of wire so that when lightning strikes exactly at, at 10.04 p.m., it'll give Michael J. Fox's character, the, his DeLorean, the flux capacitor is going to need exactly 88 miles an hour so it can have the energy it needs to get him back to the future. All right, I caught you up in about five seconds in the whole movie. Picture this. You are going to be that human bridge that connects the lightning of God's power to somebody's flux capacitor. And that's kind of where the whole analogy starts to break down pretty dramatically, but you get the point. You understand what I'm saying, right? Hezekiah was that man. Hezekiah was the man in the gap. And I believe that we should be the people in the gap. I want to start by looking in 2 Chronicles 28. Hezekiah was born into the southern kingdom of Israel at a time of great moral degradation, right? Society was falling apart. And Ahaz, his father, had been one of the worst, most ungodly kings ever that they'd ever had. So here's how the author of Chronicles summarized Ahaz's reign. This is what he says. In his time of trouble, King Ahaz became even more unfaithful to the Lord. He offered sacrifices to the gods of Damascus who had defeated him, for he thought, since the gods of the kings of Aram have helped them, I'll sacrifice to them so they'll help me. If you can't beat them, join them. Right? That's, that's what he's saying here, right? But they were his downfall, and they ended up being the downfall of all of Israel. But then it says in verse 26, Hezekiah, his son, succeeded him as king. And it says Hezekiah was only 25 years old when he became king, and he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. Chapter 29 goes on to describe how Hezekiah not only got himself right with God, but he actually, he led Israel, the entire nation, in, in this, this kind of national awakening, turning back to God. Now, I want to break this down for you into several steps to show you what a spiritual awakening would actually look like in, in, in our lives today. And this is how you stand in the gap. Number one, awakening happens when God's people clean out the junk from their lives. Do you hear me? Awakening happens when God's people clean out the junk from their lives. Chapter 29, verse 3 says, In the first month of the first year of his reign, he opened the doors of the temple of the Lord and repaired them. He brought in the priest and the Levites, assembled them in the square on the east side, and said, Listen to me, Levites, consecrate yourselves now and consecrate the temple of the Lord, the God of your ancestors. Remove all defilement from the sanctuary. And he had them consecrate themselves in the temple. Hezekiah he started this whole thing with himself, the priests, and the house of worship. So I want to just say this, friends. If we want a, a spiritual awakening in our community, in our city, in, our, in our, our, our friends, in our families, it always begins in the house of God. It always begins with us. We always, we tend to, you know, historically, and, and if we're honest, we have thought this way at times, we think it's an out there problem, right? They're callous, they're unbelieving, Hollywood is too immoral, the media is too liberal, uh, college professors are too cynical, the Supreme Court's failed us. You could go on and on and on. But I, I, I want to say I don't believe that. I believe it's us in here that always keeps a community from spiritual awakening and revival. 
when we harbor secret sins, things in our heart and our lives that we know aren't right, God's convicted us of those, we keep our community from the presence of God. Nothing grieves and drives out the presence of the Holy Spirit like harbored, unconfessed sin in the church. Sin, it destroys our sense and hunger for God's presence. Timothy Keller says that when he reconnects with a college student who grew up in a Christian home but lost faith in college, he usually asks, who are you sleeping with? And he says nine times out of ten, he says they'll see a flush of embarrassment and they'll say, what does that have to do with anything? And he says, well, it has to do with everything because, you know, if, if, if you, it, it makes the presence of God Im- imperceivable to you. Hidden sin, willful sin, it, it just, it, it's not, it's not going to connect you with God. Sin extinguishes the presence of the Holy Spirit like water to a flame. So God's awakening in the community always begins with us. It always begins in the church. One of the greatest revivals in church history, if you study church history, it happened in Korea in the early 20th century, the early 1900s. And it's beginning, it always gets traced back to one event. When the Korean church was small, just a few hundred believers in the entire country. I want you to understand this, not denominations. This is, there were a few hundred Christians in the entire country of Korea. And at a prayer service, one of the Korean church leaders, Mr. Kang, he stood up and he was trembling. And he said in barely more than a whisper, I have something to confess. I have for weeks harbored an intense hatred in my heart for Mr. Lee, our friend and missionary who's here with us. I confess before God and before you and I repent. The room fell silent and Man, they're like, did this man just publicly admit to hating the guy who is here preaching? Like, I mean, what is going on? Every eye turned to Mr. Lee to see how he was going to respond to this. And Mr. Lee was taken aback at first, and, and he could not hide his surprise. But he quickly answered, Mr. Kang, I forgive you. Mr. Kang, I forgive you. And what followed was a scene that people there later called a poignant sense of mental anguish due to conviction of sin. Church members started you know, confessing hidden sins and to weep over them and praying for forgiveness. The meeting, which was scheduled for a few hours, went till 5 a.m. the next morning. And it led to a massive outpouring of God's Spirit. And guess what? In one year, 50,000 Koreans had come to Christ. This in a country where where before there had only been a few hundred a year earlier. Think about that. The local college campus in Pyongyang, where this started, saw 90% of its students come to faith in Christ. 90%. And today, South Korea is one of the most thriving missionary sending hubs in the world. Out of the entire world, they send more missionaries almost than any other country. I read a book recently that said that, that spiritual awakening, that revivals always begin when God's people get serious about their sins. True True spiritual connection, true revival, it said, is not noisy, at least not at first. It usually begins in hushed awe. People weep over sin before they shout with joy. So can I ask you a question? Maybe, might it be you? Might it be me? I don't know what it is. Alcohol, pornography, gossip, hate, adultery. I could keep going 
I've got other things to say, but I want to ask you this before we move on. What is your junk? What junk do you need to clean out of your life? Here's what happened next. Chapter 29, verse 25, it says this. Hezekiah stationed the Levites in the temple of the Lord with cymbals, harps, and lyres in the way prescribed by David and Gad, the king's seer, and Nathan the prophet. This was commanded by the Lord through his prophets. King Hezekiah and his officials ordered the Levites to praise the Lord with the words of David and of Asaph, the seer. Do you see what he did there? Hezekiah reestablished the, the, the scriptures as the center of their lives and worship. Awakening, the second point I want to make today is this. Awakening happens when churches recenter themselves on the Bible. They recenter their lives on the Bible. Are you with me? The Bible is the life of the church. Without it, we die. I hope you notice how seriously here at Elevate we take the Bible. I hope you've noticed that. In my sermons, by the way, it's the largest time slot we give to anything in the service is the person who stands up here and opens the Bible. And our custom is to preach from the Bible. You don't want to know why? Why do we do that? Because God decides what you should know, and he's put it in the Bible, so I better serve you by walking you through it. You need to hear from God, not from me. And that's just facts. And by the way, when you've seen God in the Bible, if you actually see God in the Bible, and you understand who he is, you will respond with exuberance and joy. These people... When they saw this, they worshiped with joy and gladness. And this is what I want to say to you. I want to challenge you today. If joy and gladness does not characterize your worship of God, you definitely have never glimpsed a vision of God or understood his promises. Did you hear me? Does joy and gladness characterize your worship of God? No angel in heaven around the throne seeing God has their hands in their pockets wondering what time we're going to get out of here. Think about it. I hope you see that we even try to base our prayers on Scripture because Scripture teaches us how to pray. In 2 Samuel 7, David offers to build God a house, and God tells him he'll build him a house. 2 Samuel 7, 27, David says this, By this promise, your servant has found courage to pray. Literally, literally in the Hebrew there, it says he has found the heart to pray. God's word gave him the desire and the drive and the strength to pray. I want you to think about this. Prayers that start in heaven are heard by heaven. Scripture is the life of the church. We put it everywhere. Remove the centrality of Scripture from the church and we die. We have nothing. Remove the centrality of Scripture from your own life, your marriage, your family, your job, and it'll die too. Give it time. Cling to it. Savor it. Plumb its depths. So saturate yourself in it that everything that comes out of your mind and your heart, and I would dare say your mouth, is based in Scripture. The third, thing I wanna, third point I want to make today is this. Awakening happens when Christians will recenter themselves on the gospel. They recenter themselves on the gospel. Second Chronicles chapter 30 gives a lengthy description of how Hezekiah reinstituted the Passover feast. Now the Passover, it was a feast that commemorated the night when God had told all of Israel to take the blood of a lamb and to put it on the doorpost of every house to protect them from the curse of death he was sending on the whole country. And he says, when I see the blood, God says, I will pass over you. That's why it's called Passover, by the way. 
In the New Testament, this actually becomes the symbol for what Christ did for us on the cross. You see, all of us as human beings, we are under the curse of death, but Jesus' blood on the doorpost of our heart is what keeps us from it. Wow, not even one amen or anything. Mercy. When Hezekiah came into power, the people had neglected that ceremony. So he came in and he put it square back in the middle. And if you go back and you study Israel's times of, uh, of spiritual decline, they are always characterized by a spiritual forgetting. They forgot what God had done. They forgot his mighty works in the past, the Bible says. How God brings them back is by reminding them of his great salvation. It's the same, this is true with us too. 2 Peter 1 verse 9 says that when we grow cold spiritually, it is because we have forgotten that we were cleansed from our first sins. Forgotten. That doesn't mean we don't know that it happened. It just means that it's not real and it's not fresh to us any longer. Listen, for you to experience personal awakening, you usually don't need to learn some new precept. You, you need to become more intimate with how great a salvation God has given you in Jesus. Are you spiritually cold? Ask God to open your eyes to the enormity of what you have in Christ Jesus. The Bible says, what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us. You see, the gospel, it's like a well. You don't find better water by widening the well, but you find better water by going deeper into it. If I have one goal in my preaching, it's to help you to behold each week the wonder of the gospel. That you were so bad that Jesus had to die to save you, and his love for you was so intense that he was glad to do it in order to save you. One other dimension of this before I go on to number four. Verse 17 says, since many in the crowd had not consecrated themselves, the Levites had to kill the Passover lambs for all those who were not ceremonial clean and could not consecrate their lambs to the Lord. What is this saying? What this shows you is that the sacrifice has to be individually applied to everyone. Now in this setting, the priest could do it for the people, right? Because it was more of a ceremonial thing. It was symbolic. But I cannot apply the sacrifice of Jesus to you. You have to choose it for yourself. But the point being made is the same. Listen, the gospel has to be individually applied to every single person. There is no uh, salvation by association with the right group of people. You have to choose it to receive it personally. So very simply, have you done that? Have you done that? Have you personally trusted in Jesus? My fear is that many of us get caught up in the movement without ever making the decision. Anybody ever hear of the old book, Pilgrim's Progress? You guys know that book? I've kind of been rereading it recently a little bit. And there's a guy who, who travels with Christian, the main character. And he travels with him to the celestial city. He, he's with Christian the whole way. And this guy, he has no parchment, which in the story, it represents the salvation experience. And Christian asks them several times about it, and he just blows them off. But when they get to the gate of the celestial city, the angel asks him where his parchment is, and since he does not have it, they bar his entrance to heaven, and they cast him, as, as the author says, out into outer darkness. And I was thinking about that. I was like, man, I pray that none of us are going to be in that group. 
traveling with us but never having made a decision personally. Traveling with the group. You're with the right people, but you yourself don't have it. As we say, God has no grandchildren. You have to choose to receive Christ personally. Have you done that? Have you done that? The fourth thing I want to point out is this. Awakening happens when God's people devote themselves to intercessory prayer. Throughout these chapters, we find Hezekiah praying for his people. Verse 18 says, But Hezekiah prayed for them, saying, May the Lord who is good pardon everyone. And the Lord heard Hezekiah and healed the people. The priests and the Levites stood to bless the people, and God heard them, for their prayer reached heaven, his holy dwelling place. Awakening happens when God's people devote themselves to prayer. Period. That's when awakening really, really is going to happen. If you want to transform the city, your community, your family, your school, you better be spending time in prayer. Jonathan Edwards, who led in the first great awakening in our country, the largest revival or, or awakening our country has ever seen, he said that extraordinary prayer characterized the great awakening. There is no awakening, he says, apart from prayer. So prayer doesn't bring the awakening. Prayer is the awakening. Another missionary who worked in China during the great you know, awakenings there and great revivals there said, I used to think that, that prayer should have the first place in teaching the seconds. I now feel it would be truer to give prayer the first, second, and third places and then teaching fourth. I want you to think about this. The apostles in Acts, they prayed for 10 days straight. Let me ask you, do you pray daily for our church? Do you pray daily for our city? Do you pray daily for your family, for your kids? It's inconceivable to think that you want the power of God and yet you don't pray. Let me ask you this. If God answered all your prayers in one fell swoop, what would change? What would change? What are you asking God for? Are you spending time in prayer? The fifth thing I want to point out to you is this. Awakening happens when God's people give extravagantly. Look with me what it says here. The Israelites generously gave the first fruits of their grain. They brought a great amount, a tithe of everything, and they piled it in heaps. When Hezekiah and his officials came and saw the heaps, they praised the Lord and blessed his people Israel. Hezekiah asked the priests and Levites about the heaps, and Azariah, the chief priest, answered, Since the people begin to bring their contributions to the temple of the Lord, we have had enough to eat and plenty to spare, because the Lord has blessed his people, and this great amount is left over. Friends, you cannot outgive God. You cannot outgive God. Hezekiah led in an offering, and the people were so grateful for what they had seen God do in their midst. They poured out so much that there were actually heaps left over. Think about this. Elevate. I'm going to challenge us today. Let's pile it all up in a heap like Hezekiah had them do. So we not only have what we need, but we have enough left over to spare. One last thing is, I'm winding this thing down. It says in, in verse 25, it says, The entire assembly of Judah rejoiced, along with the priests and Levites and all who had assembled from Israel, including the foreigners who had come from Israel and also those who had resided in Judah. 
Their generosity, I want you to understand this, their generosity not only restored the temple, it blessed their neighbors, the foreigners, those who didn't belong to Israel. Elevate. We stand in the gap for Hattiesburg. Awakening is not going to happen in our city. We're not going to see what we want to see happen uh, when they become less wicked or when we get the right politicians and the right mayor and they finally get it right or the professors at USM are less liberal. It's going to happen when we devote ourselves to these things. Ezekiel chapter 22. This is what it says. And I looked for someone among them who would stand before me in the gap on behalf of the land so I would not have to destroy it. But I found no one. So I will bring down on their own heads all they have done, declares the sovereign Lord. Here's what I most love about that passage. The ultimate one who would stand in the gap between God and us was Jesus. He rendered perfect obedience to the Father. He prayed for us. He gave himself as a sacrifice. And God brought down on his head the punishment for our disobedience. Those of us who are saved because of his sacrifice should then no longer live for ourselves. But we ought to offer our lives like Jesus did. We ought to stand in the gap like Jesus did so that others can live through our own sacrifice and even our own death if necessary. Do you have unconfessed sins? Are you devoted to Scripture? Are you sure that you personally have received Christ? Are you in prayer? And do you have a, a sacrificial gift to make? I want to challenge you to pray on these things, to think on these things. And I, I just want to invite you throughout this week to be in, in, in communion with God, talking with God, saying, Lord, Where's the junk in my life that I need to clean out? How do I recenter myself on, on you, your word, the gospel? And how do I start to live my life sacrificially so I can stand in the gap and I can be like Jesus and I can connect people with you? Pray with me. Father God, it's, it's humbling when we look and we understand the, the, the magnitude of what you called us to, to do and to be. And we recognize that, that, first of all, we wouldn't even be here unless you had, had called us and you had stood in the gap on our behalf, Jesus, and we want to give you praise and glory for everything you have done because it's made it possible for us to be where we are. But Jesus, when you left, you, you told us, just as the Father has sent me, I now send you. And you have called us now to step up and to sacrifice. You've called us to, to step up and to stand in the gap for the people that are in our communities, in our lives, in our time. We were made for such a time as this. And God, I pray that you will pour out your spirit on each and every one of us on the families that we represent. I pray that you will pour out your spirit on Elevate, on this city, that we will be a beacon of hope, a place that would be a coupler that would connect people with you. It wouldn't be about us. 
but we would just be a place where people could come and connect with you. We love you. We praise you. We ask all this in Jesus' name.